0: You're traveling down the freeway at two hundred k, maybe two fifty k, right? And then you're like, "Okay, I'm hungry. I'm going to turn off this intersection, this junction here." And you do a Scandinavian flick. You're on the e-brake, clutch in. You're steering off the intersection. You're dropping a couple of gears into the next roundabout. You jump over the roundabout, load the car up, still sliding, pop another gears down, and then you slide into McDonald's drive-through. That's really what it is.
1: Welcome to the HPA Tuned In podcast, I'm Andre your host and in this episode we've got Frederick Aspo joining us all the way from his home in Norway. Now Frederick, if you aren't aware of who he is, he's best known for driving sideways at very high speed, he is the winningest driver in history of Formula D in the US. Now Drifting at a professional level is something that is incredibly difficult to break into. So we talked to Frederick about his process of how he went from racing karts to racing basically grassroots drifting in Norway or in uh, Europe in general and then making that bold move to the US and it's really easy to look at someone with the success of Frederick and uh, think that they basically got everything handed to them on a platter and as we go through this interview you're going to find that's simply not the case, Frederick has worked incredibly hard and no doubt he's also incredibly talented but it's that combination of talent and hard work that has got him the success that he's seen to date. Interestingly with Frederick though, he has seen some success in some rather unique Vehicles, In particular he is sponsored by Toyota and he ran both the Scion TC and also then the Toyota Corolla. Now uh, these are better known as entry level, cheap, run around front wheel drive cars, not something you generally see in professional drifting. Obviously a lot of modifications went into that but the interesting part other than the conversion to, to rear wheel drive is that when everyone else is using big capacity vehicles, V8s, two JZs, etc., uh, making eight, nine hundred, maybe a thousand horsepower. Uh, Frederick was doing all of that with a two point seven liter four cylinder. So we talked to Frederick about the pros and cons of competing with a small capacity four cylinder engine, the reliability and the maintenance that went into that. Also, really interesting conversation within this podcast about the sort of setup changes that a professional drifter uses uh, to dial the car in. To the track. Now, before we get into the interview, just a quick introduction for those who maybe don't know what High Performance Academy is. We are an online training school. We specialize in teaching people how to tune, how to build engines, how to wire race cars, and also relevant to today's topic, we also cover driver education, race driver education, and race car alignment and setup. Now, in particular, relevant to today's Today's podcast, two of our courses that you may find interesting are our motorsport wheel alignment course it will teach you how to align your race car or your street car if you're taking it to track days and also our race driver fundamentals course which will teach you some of the mindset and skills that you're going to need if you want to be successful out on the racetrack and you'll find those courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Uh, we'll give you some links to those courses in the show notes and as a bonus you can use the coupon code Podcast75 that will give you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All right, let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Frederick. Thanks for, for joining us here today. You've got a, a fairly long and uh, illustrious career in drifting, uh, I believe uh, the most winningest driver in Formula D uh, but before you got to, to drifting, uh, you grew up from what I understand in, in Norway and one of the things we see, maybe not so much in drifting but uh, in world rallying is a, a lot of the most successful drivers come from uh, Scandinavia. What what is it about growing up in, in those countries that that makes people so good at going sideways?
0: Well, uh, first and foremost, thanks for having me. This is uh, this is cool. It's cool to get to keep, you know, meeting like minded people like yourself. And uh, from what I understand, we're going to be able to get quite technical today. And uh, absolutely, I think you know, your back to your question, growing up here, being able to to drive in tricky conditions is kind of a part of life you know for me it was my grandma that taught me how to rip the e-brake you know i remember coming into a turn she was under steering and just casually ripped the e-brake to you know kind of set the car up into a little bit of a slide and throttled out of it so it's kind of uh it's just it, it's just something that comes with uh with the, uh, with how we're brought up here you know like the sure. snow and you know the it's really common here to have a, a project car or some kind of race car in your garage back in the early 2000s you know the norway and sweden and denmark got flooded with japanese you know sports cars so there's a lot of car culture here you know the the speed hunters phenomenon you know we have track days of 40,000 people which is significant when you're a country of only 5 million people so it's really a a um, really deeply anchored, you know, way of of life, and you know, the, sure. the Finnish rally drivers were probably the best, but we, us Norwegians, we have a we have a couple of decent ones too. Now,
1: is is there anything just to sort of go deep into to how you you're brought up over there? Is there anything different or special that you're taught when you're actually learning to drive, or is it just relying on on your grandma to teach you how to pull the e rate? <laughs>
0: I think for your driving test, you have to do what we call a—it's uh, an elk or a moose maneuver. Sure. So it's basically, you know, they—they they have these wet tracks or, or oily, steel-plated courses that you run in the summer. Obviously, in the winter, you do it in ice, where you have these like obstacles come out. So it's—it's—it's it's, it's a thing that everyone needs to learn. I think that art is—is. Mm. Is, it's a little bit lost on the new generation of, you know, kids growing up, but it's definitely a, a pretty thorough way of, of learning to deal with the elements. You know, we have vast vastly different tires for different locations. You know, some areas in Norway will have a lot of, of sheet ice, other areas will be just wet, you know, in the in the winter. But it's that understanding of studded tires versus non-studded tires, and being able to deal with the elements. It's just, it's really comprehensive, you know, especially compared to what I see in the U S where I remember when I got my California license, it, it was like 50 bucks and just show us how <laughs> you, you do a curb parking, you know, like it, it's yeah, focused on the important exactly. stuff. Exactly. Drive through. Yeah.
1: I mean here, here, here in Queenstown, we, we have snow on the ground, maybe if we're lucky three times a, a year and People lose their mind because right. no one knows how to drive. But of course, our cars uh, are not running on studded or even winter tyres. So it, it goes with the territory. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your progress from uh, ripping the e brake with grandma to, to actually getting involved in, in drifting. I understand uh, Rallycross ran in your, your family. So, so motorsport was, was not sort of uh, anything particularly
0: new to you. Yeah, so my dad was into grassroots rally and rallycross, and he, he was a typical example of, of a guy that had the drive and the ambition, but he had two kids and, and a wife to feed and didn't have the time or really the funding to do it. Um, and, you know, growing up, I didn't see my dad a lot because he was working all the time. And as I turn, I think when I turned 12, he he had a little bit of money he felt really bad for not having spent time with me, so we ended up going go-karting. And mm. I was absolutely terrible at, at, at first, especially. Uh, I was kind of like one of those little bit sheltered and, and scared kids, you know? Uh, and eventually got a little more hang you know, hang of the go-karting and, and realized I was quite tall. So I, I struggled with too much grip in the dry, but in the wet, I did a lot better. And eventually started learning more and more car control. And, and uh, you know, we got a couple of wins and we were competing in the toughest class. And go-karting is such a good, it, it's the best school for learning how to race. Because you get penalized so heavily for each mistake you make. And it's something that's really mm. helped me in the years past. Like I have this built-in sense of speed and that internal hustle, you know, that you get from being a go-kart racer where you're really trying to avoid any kind of mistake so you know being brought up through go-karting then discovering drifting in and in fact the new zealand scene back in like 05 06 was with, with fanga dan and and my when mike started i guess mike became a part of it a little bit later but that whole yep. scene and and actually dreaming of going to new zealand to compete eventually that was on my bucket list still is honestly uh, but we're still here. right, and I can't believe I haven't visited yet. But um, that's uh, yeah, one day I'll come and see you guys. But discovering drifting out of Japan and eventually building a basic drift cars with my buddy and starting to to compete here in Northern Europe when when drifting was in its infancy, it was I got l- really lucky with my timing, you know, coming off of the the go kart stint and now being able to get into drifting to. And spend my scholarship for school and that was enough to basically build a basic car that would hang in that championship it was all the timing was great Uh, and I was able to kind of grow with the sport here and then that coupled with some bigger ambitions was what led me to the rest of the career
1: all right so just talk a bit about that that timing I've got a sense of maybe where you're going with this obviously drifting has exploded over the last decade or two uh worldwide mm. but uh what what was it specifically when you you talk about timing that that was so critical
0: so that in that time frame so from like 2003 through maybe 2008 uh drifting came in to norway and and europe mm. and uh there were no dedicated cars there were you know very you know basic understanding of what drifting was and my first car was an E30 uh, with an S50 engine, like 250, 280 horsepower. Um, and you know, we were running pretty shitty tires, frankly. And you know, it was just trying to get a grip on what was going on. And it yeah. was a, it was a time for uh, how to put it. Like I I never had the the car. I never had the card that would look good on paper. I never had really competitive car, but I had quite a bit of racecraft from my go-karting days. And I was able to mm-hmm. utilize that and kind of turn myself into this underdog and having the judges maybe sway a decision in my direction because I realized what they were looking for. Does that make sense? Like, um it's always easy to go with the underdog, and I kind of play that card to my advantage. Eventually, got some sponsors and built a a Supra back in two thousand and eight. But during all of this, you could you could you could build a car for like ten thousand dollars and be quite competitive. And those days are long gone.
1: Yeah, so that that was kind of the the sense of what I, what I was expecting you're going to say. Yeah, uh, you know, we saw the same here in New Zealand when when drifting first sort of really started to become popular, you, know, you you could probably be reasonably competitive with a relatively low budget car whereas the, those days have gone now. If you, you want to compete just about in any worldwide series at the top end, uh, I, I'd guess if you weren't prepared to drop 100k on a car or more, uh, you might as, well, might as well not bother. Now, the other aspect you, you said that your racecraft craft that you, you sort of learned in karting now, what what specifically was it about um, the the karting experience that, that you translated across to to drifting? Obviously, it's it's a different type of competition, but um, you know, you door to door as well.
0: I want to say the the most important thing is is to be analytical, and uh, you know, in, in go karting, obviously, it's the only thing that matters is to stopwatch. Right. Nothing else really matters. Whereas drifting came in and it was seemingly, you know, a way of expressing yourself and having these different cars and the diversity with drivers. And, you know, drifting came in and was so many different things to so many different people. It still is today. Right. From the lifestyle part of it mm. to the all comp- competitive side of it. So I was able to go into competition and look at it from a racer's point of view. Where a lot of guys would come in and, and, and burn tires or whatever was fun. I would come in and see why did we lose a battle and why did we win a battle. And, and that way I was able to excel from a competitive point of view. I mean, again, my cars look looked like trash and, and in many ways they were. But, but having that, coming from motorsports like that, it, it was such a head start. You know, against some of these other guys.
1: So a bit more analysis around a- each run and where the strengths and weaknesses were so you could build on the strengths and, and maybe yeah. work on eliminating the weaknesses. Yeah.
0: And it's like, okay. it, it, if you want to succeed in something, right? It, it, there's, it's this old saying, I don't know exactly how it goes, but you have guys that are naturally very talented, but they're so talented, they don't need to work for it. And then you have guys that aren't that talented, They have to work harder, so they're going to excel and and basically surpass these other guys because they're just harder workers. And I feel like it's, yeah, there's something there. It's
1: an interesting point you raise and it's something I've I've always sort of had in the back of my mind as well. I think a lot of people think that any form of motorsport, it's sort of some kind of perhaps God-given gift, but you're of the opinion that there's those who do have that God-given gift, but even if you don't, if you want to put in the work and and knuckle down, you can still excel.
0: Yeah, totally. So I I have a lot of kids asking me and messaging me uh, today uh, or, you know, over the last five, 10 years how do I become a pro one formula drift driver or how do I do this or do that? And back in the day, I would, I would tell him, okay, I believe in, you know, start off with this kind of chassis, practice this, do this, do that. Now I usually just tell him, uh, if you want it enough, and maybe this sounds cocky, but I don't mean it that way. I just tell him, uh, if you want it enough, it's going to happen. Because if you want it enough, you're going to spend the, devote the time needed to excel. You're going to talk to people like myself and others and learn from all of them. You're going to show up at the racetrack. You're going to, you know, you're going to learn, learn to learn the craft. And that was yeah, absolutely right. And 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 I think success is when opportunity meets that little bit of luck. And you know, I remember Von Gittin Jr., my one of my peers in FD, he once said that you make your own luck. And I think that's that's a big, big thing in motorsports, because yes, Definitely. it's only a fair few that get the chance to do it, but out of those, it's the guys that can basically tip the scale in their favor the most that will get that, you know.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I think these days a lot of people, um, you yeah, know, maybe they've got a, a, a small amount of talent and, and you know, they're, they're on the their way to, to being something big but uh, sitting back and waiting for you to be handed that opportunity on a plate uh, probably doesn't work out that well for too many people, particularly now with uh, a drifting industry that's, that's so popular, you've got so many more people competing for just a handful of, of opportunities. Okay so let, let's move forward, so you, you won the Norwegian Drift Championship and and how how did you translate that to deciding to compete in the US?
0: So at that time I was probably early twenties and I was studying uh, here in Oslo in Norway, in college, and started working at you know a, a basically dot com company, you know, an early internet company, and and in two thousand and eight I. I caught word that there was going to be a world championship in the U S in the Port of long beach, uh, you know, put on by formula drift. And I had never been to the U S at that point. And I, you know, I was a small town kid that, that, you know, loved drifting. And I always, you know, I was watching Baywatch and I was like, hell yeah, I want to go check out the States. And, you know, like, how do we, how do I get to do that? And I've always been kind of opportunistic or, I've always enjoyed putting myself in situations where I don't have any idea how to do it. But maybe there's a way I can find out. And that's what happened. It was the world championship. It would be the top 32 teams in the world that would get an invite. We were far from being good enough to do that. But I took everything I learned in school. I I was studying media communications and some business stuff. So I put together a pitch. All the highlights from, you know, our ca- small campaign here in Northern Europe, all the best photos, and basically sold our way into Formula Drift. And then I got an email back from them two months later that read, Frederick Packer bags, see in Long Beach. And how was that in- nice. invite. And all of a sudden, we were among the 32 invited teams. I mean, you know, we were there against likes of uh, Luke Fink, Mad Mike was there. Uh, we later went on to become good friends, you know, as part of Team Speedhunters. And and I I was, you know, I just remember landing in the U.S. We were looking for the car that we had shipped. I got lost in Compton in L.A. All my buddies from back home were traveling with me. They all got lost in strip clubs in Vegas. And you know, we were we were just <laughs> scattered all over the place. We were absolutely fresh off the boat in every. In every way, but somehow we managed to to become the best, Euro- we finished as the best European team out of seven European teams at that event. And it really lit, you know, lit the fire for trying to do more stuff in the US. So we left the car behind, went back to Norway, started working and tried to come back later.
1: That, that sort of success being, you know, placing as the top uh, European team, is that was that enough to kind of get some exposure to US companies that were maybe looking at sponsorship, or did that not happen straight off the bat?
0: Definitely not straight off the bat. That was, it took a long time. So after that, this was the end of 2008, went back back to Europe, tried to do another round in the US the next year, uh, got to the final round at Irvingdale, 2009, Absolutely sucked and got kicked out or, uh, you know, lost out early and spent all of our money in the process. So that winter between 09 and 10, my good friend uh, Stefan, not Papadakis, but another Stefan from Norway, he moved in, in you know, into my, my, uh, my parents' home here in Norway where I still lived. And we started really studying drifting. Like we threw down uh, on you know, how to re. we started dissecting drifting, basically, and understanding what's really, how do we win the battles? How do we, how do we actually understand the craft that is drifting? So we really, we worked mm. really hard that winter, we put a, put up basically like a class or like a, an ad in some of the super forums in the US and asked for a shop to work with. And this local shop in East LA, FSR Motorsport, they, they offered us basically an internship where my buddy would, would be wrenching on the cars. I would be selling their parts on eBay. We were sleeping together in this like crack house motel down the street and try to get ready for FD Long Beach in April 2010. And it was all really, it was that like, it was that old story of this, this struggling actor trying to make it in LA, right? Yeah, I I want people
1: listening to, to really take note of, of that because I think from the, the outside and particularly these days, people think that they're just going to, as I said, you've got a bit of talent and maybe just going to stumble into a, a multi-million dollar sponsorship deal and, and, and that's how easy it is. And just listening to the sacrifices that you went through to get where you've got that's that's the real world of actually succeeding in just about any form of motorsport, or for that matter, anything that that's difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't it? I mean, look at the biggest companies in the world and how they started out of a garage, right? And I I don't know a single successful drifter that didn't start out by maxing out their credit cards or, you know, spending everything they got. I think and I think yeah. sponsors even look for that. If I was it was if I was on the other side of the table and I was looking at my options for sponsoring people. Who do you want to work with? Of course, you want to work with the person that throws absolutely everything they have, you know, passion. That's what really what they're investing yeah. in.
1: Yeah, I think the, the the work ethic is so critical as opposed to, you know, a, a lot of people these days, there's a, a lot of entitlement thinking that they deserve such and such and, and no one really deserves anything. Right. It, it's, it's, as you say, it, it's what you make of it. Yeah. All right, so so let's fast forward the uh, the journey a, a little bit. Um, actually, if we we jump maybe more towards a, a bit of the modern day stuff. And uh, back in I think it's twenty sixteen, uh, you won Formula D fifteen using a little four cylinder yep. fifteen. Yep. Sorry, uh, with a, a little four cylinder engine, which at at that time. Uh, was probably relatively unheard of. You're, you're competing against uh, much bigger capacity engines, six cylinders, V8s, turbos, and, and you're doing all of that with with a small capacity four cylinder engine. Uh, so first of all, why do why did you go that path? What was it that drove the four cylinder engine
0: choice? So there's a couple of reasons why. So you know, in 2010, we got our breakthrough season in FT. 2011, I started working with Stefan Papadakis, uh, who's, you know, to this day, the team owner. Um, And he has a... Okay, for starters, he has a long history of sport compact drag racing with four bangers. Hondas, you know, they were really pushing the bar with those four-cylinder Hondas back in, like, their early 2000s and even before that. So, he has a natural hang or natural interest in going against the stream and doing... Doing stuff differently, and as you know, in, in the words of Steph, he would say that it's a lot easier to see succeed at something when no one else is doing it, right? Uh, and at the same time, there's a lot of new tech out there that he loves, and making a four cylinder, you know, a 2.7 four cylinder work in a feel or an ocean of, of seven liter V8s is. It's tricky, but at the same time, what's so cool about drifting, or one of the things that, that are so cool, is there's no limitations on motors. So you can use whatever fuel, you can use whatever uh, technology you want to use, so, and, and the grip levels are still limited. So the mm. equalizer for all these different cars is really the tires more so than the power plants. So with sure. that said, it's relatively easy to make these different motors work. Um, so you have this on one side and on the other side, we have the manufacturers, the car manufacturers like Toyota that are, that need, they need to push the more basic cars because that's their bread and butter. That's the cars that they're actually selling. And that's where marketing budgets are associated with those cars. So it's partly a marketing exercise for Toyota or Scion at the time to push these, uh, more basic cars meeting the interest and the the tech prowess of the teams in order to make that happen so that's really where i feel like that that title in 2015 was it was a double-sided win because one we won the championship which we all want to do and number two we won it in a in a car that where we did a real marketing effort for toyota which makes it taste a lot better it tastes better than and, and, and I don't mean this in the wrong way, but it tastes better than spending, you know, family money or uh, robbing the bank. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. So on, on that corporate sponsorship side, swapping in a seven liter GM LS just obviously wasn't going to fly. Right. But. You've you've mentioned their power levels, and and I mean I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure where you were with that engine. I mean we hear numbers thrown around seven, eight hundred horsepower, nine hundred, a thousand horsepower, and and while like. I, I I was a big fan of uh um, Stephen Papadakis back in the day he I sort of followed his uh his drag racing and that's what got me personally uh interested in drag racing as well so cool. he he's a very smart guy uh I, I love watching his his uh, YouTube engine videos yeah. and uh if anyone can do it uh Stephen certainly can but uh, what I'd say is probably making power from a relatively small capacity engine, 2.7 still, it's a, it's a big four-cylinder yep. but still compared to seven litres you've got that deficit uh, and t- turbochargers kind of are the the equaliser in terms of that replacement for displacement. However, you do end up generally with a relatively narrow power band compared to that big capacity V eight. You, you're going to be probably lacking bottom end, although uh, you know you can add nitrous to the mix as well. So the the solutions to a lot of these problems, but. Is it fair to say you ended up with a narrower power band compared to the, to the V8s? And did you have to drive the, the car differently to extract the performance out of it?
0: Um, yes. I mean, yes, it is. But I feel like it's, more, it's a little more complicated than that. Because, okay, so let's say that four-banger at the time at that stage of development was probably 7, 800 hub horsepower. I want to say yeah. we had about 4,500 4, RPM of usable power band, so call it 9 or 85 to 4, you know, 4 to 8,500 mm-hmm. RPM, whereas a, an NA, high-strung NA uh, V8 also has a quite limited power band, Right? Whereas if you start, you know, supercharging or or turbocharging, obviously you've broadened that up. But now you introduce other issues like weight, front weight bias, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. There's a lot of different ways to be successful in drift with these different power plants. And usually you can drive around some of these limitations. Um, But for sure, we definitely had a, a narrower power band than we wanted uh, that power plant is still in use in Formula Drift today with uh, Ryan Turk in the Corolla, uh, whereas yeah. we've moved on to the B58 motor, the three-liter uh, GR Supra, but, you yeah. know, the BMW Toyota partnership, uh, and we're still running a limited uh, limited displacement. We're at like three point sixteen or three point two at this point, but we we're constantly working towards broadening the power band. And we like to think, we don't necessarily need uh, power everywhere, but we need RPM so we can stretch out these sections w- without having to shift. There's a lot of different you know, uh, technical aspects to this. Gearing is very critical. Uh, we've become more and more proficient with gearing each transmission gear individually per corner. Um we, I basically forced Steph to purchase the whole G-Force catalog of, of transmission gears in addition to the quick change gears. So we, there's a lot of Excel spreadsheets, you know, uh, that we work through uh, for both suspension and car setup and motor setup in order to work around these uh, limitations, like sure. the power band is all right well i definitely
1: want to talk about the the transmission and final drive aspect of tuning uh shortly but before we finish up with the uh the four banger uh with with such a small capacity engine producing eight hundred horse at the hubs so depending what sort of conversion factor you you want to chuck at that um, i mean probably conservatively you you 've got to be around nine hundred flywheels so so that it's up there uh what what was the maintenance on those engines like or what was their reliability like? We, did, did it suffer because you're pushing them so damn we hard? We
0: blew up a ton
1: of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen photos of the transporter with a, a lineup of fresh engines sitting there waiting to be swapped yeah. in.
0: So it, it's... Um... That block, that motor, to begin with, is it's an eco motor. You know, it's basically a minivan motor that we come in the Siennas and the Rav4s, and you know, so it's not intended to be a high performance motor. Uh, open deck. Uh, you know, we had some weird head flex issues where some of the water, ja- like the, the actual cross section and some of the water section coolant sections, were was really thin. So Steph would drill in right. a stud from the top through the uh, coolant, you know, the the passage, basically, to push down on the deck in between some <laughs> of the cylinders. So a lot of trick and sometimes crude ways of dealing with it. But he's very yeah. methodical with working through these things. I think one of Steph's biggest strengths is is that he's very good at finding people that are better at stuff than he is. So he has a lot of very knowledgeable friends that he would, you know, work out these issues with uh, and eventually that motor become quite the killer and and i think uh ryan's motor now makes i want to say nine mid nine to the hub so like 950 wheel horsepower yeah. which is pretty that's yeah pretty you know substantial for a car that's being run that hard of course we're not running in that long Definitely. only like 30 seconds a pass but you know it's it's pretty bitching Having said that, normally those
1: sort of power levels from four-cylinder engines are sort of seen from drag engines, which only run for you know six, seven, eight seconds under full load. So thirty seconds is still relatively speaking, eternity. What what I kind of want to mention, just from my own you know efforts with developing drag engines at kind of similar, maybe slightly higher power levels, is you do tend to find weaknesses, obviously and if if you are persevering with the same platform season after season you, know, you see these weaknesses come up, you can work around solutions and again uh, Steph's obviously a, a pretty smart cookie as you say, surrounds himself with uh, even smarter people so you, you can iron out these bugs and, and over time it might not happen straight away but but it is possible to get a, a, a relatively reliable solution even if you still maybe need to take a couple of spare engines along to the track each weekend but uh, yeah. you know, that, it is what it is. Uh, now one of the things though I'm interested, is the advantages as you see it in the small capacity engine, I'm assuming even when you hang a turbocharger off the side of it, there's got to be a weight advantage in that sitting right over the the front axle line. So yeah, how how does that transpire compared to like a 7 litre V8 maybe with a supercharger on it?
0: I don't. I don't have the actual weight numbers uh, here, but I, the the four banger is quite light, and even with the manifold and the turbo, it's lighter than the lightest LS setups. And for that particular, yeah. you know, for the for the Corollas and the Scion TCS, the the firewall to front axle distance is quite short. So basically, I want to say. For for a V8 or a four-banger, probably 70% of the motor would be in front of the axle. So that's a big, big advantage for sure. sure. Uh, but that's, you know, for a more, call, call it a more normal car like the GR Supra, that's less of an issue. Um, and so it, it's more, and, you know, you can also argue whether that front weight bias is really an issue or not um cuz we we generate a lot of the grip these days with with uh, mechanical mechanical ways so we can probably get by and with a little more front weight bias but at the end of the day okay. i don't think that corolla setup is the ideal perfect car overall uh there's some good benefits to the rear trailing arm setup and stuff like that but we're starting to see now in drifting that we're moving towards traditional, strong race car chassis setups, right? With maybe Makes double A arm front front end, you know, more of the Corvette looking cars, or the GR Supra with the with the really low center of gravity. Uh, so more and more of that stuff is becoming uh, prevalent.
1: Uh, that, that segues quite nicely into to the next question I had which is around th- those chassis. So obviously you've mentioned you've got the sponsorship deal with Scion and then you know, obviously that trans- translated over to Toyota. So you started with the Scion TC, then the Toyota Corolla. Uh, we're talking about basically a, an entry level Econobox daily driver front wheel drive chassis that uh, on paper it looks like it's about as wide as it is long. And for me, as a as a non-drifter, that doesn't look like the ideal solution for a, a drift chassis if you had a clean sheet of paper and you were just picking the best of the best. Mm. What what challenges does that give you? I mean, obviously you have to convert the, the chassis for a start from front-wheel drive to, to rear-wheel drive, but um, you know, particularly the wheelbase to track, is that a problem or am I kind of overanalyzing that?
0: So the Corolla is... Actually, has a quite long wheelbase. Uh, okay. So the current Corolla that Ryan's in and that, that I was in in twenty eighteen is a one hundred and five inch wheelbase, whereas the GR Supra is like ninety five. So so oh, okay. you, wow. yeah, right. So I think what it is is you see a hatchback and you think it's a you think it's a small car, but as you know, every generational car will grow, except the GR Supra, which actually shrunk. Uh, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's like you said, it's very deceptive and you'll see it when the two cars are lined up at the start, like the Mustang and the Corolla lined up together makes the Corolla look big when you actually see them. Right. So we, yeah, okay. so, okay. So wheelbase is, uh, important and it looks to be kind of like an ideal sweet spot of mid hundred inch, like 105 is probably quite ideal all round. Um, some other benefits to the Corolla is that rear, rear trailing arm setup, which makes it, you basically adjust uh, squat and anti-squat with ride height. It has some good corner exit properties that seem to work well in drift. It's relatively easy to set up. And a lot of front-wheel drive cars will have these weird torsion style rear axles right luckily that generation of of uh, the corolla doesn't so it actually has a rear suspension that that lends itself nicely to drift the downside the biggest downside is uh well there's a couple is uh firewall to front axle clearance for weight bias that's that's one but the biggest one is probably center of gravity so what we started seeing with the corolla is that we would no matter what we did we would start wearing the outside tire more it was hard to really uh, run the car soft and at the same time prevent roll uh, mm. you you start running into these issues where you just can't you just can't compare to a, a GT86 or a, a Corvette or the GR Supra Now it's
1: interesting you, you just mentioned the GT86 that uh, ZN6 chassis was obviously available when you were competing in the Scion TC and the Toyota Corolla. Mm -hmm. So I mean on paper just from a layman's perspective if I look at the uh, GT86 and I look at the work involved in converting a front wheel drive Corolla to a competitive drift car and I'm thinking surely the GT86 just makes more sense all round.
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: is that just driven by Toyota's marketing campaign? They they wanted to put uh, put money behind the Corolla slash TC, or is there something else I'm not aware of there?
0: That, I think that's it. That's really it. And of course, there are there are many, you know, opinions and meetings and discussions and 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 strategies and and ways of thinking about this. But if you really break down the Toyota team, even today in FD, you have. If you start with the drivers, you have uh, Ken Gushi, who's a Japanese-American OG drifter. You have Ryan Turk, hailing from mm. the East Coast of the U.S., white boy. You have myself, who's this kind of weird, uh, you know, European dude. And we have Jonathan Castro from the Dominican Republic. So, it's a very diverse team of drivers, right? And if you... Definitely. Right? And, it, and the same goes for the cars. I mean, if I was... chief executive at Toyota I think it'd be really cool to have all these different cars in the in the sport and kind of have them bounce off of each other and take on different opponents and so I think it's it add if drifting was about diversity when it started coming around I think Toyota's just added to that by having these different cars be in the show and yeah, and and that way they can they have a lot more freedom to to market these different cars and there there's a there's a bigger story there right At the end of the day I think mm. the function that motorsports play for manufacturers is that story And I think they've done a good job of dealing with that by having these different cars in the sport
1: I, I mean obviously the the young guys and girls watching uh you know may, maybe initially don't have budget for a, a brand new Supra uh, but as you say the, the the Corolla maybe looks like a more affordable option, I, I'm assuming most of them are probably smart enough to know that uh, off the showroom floor they're probably not going to make the ideal drift car but still you've got the uh, the look and feel of what they're seeing in, in FD so yeah I, I, I can get that from uh, from Toyota's perspective, maybe you're right it, it does make a, a, a lot of sense now we've talked a little bit so far about power levels. I just want to dive into that a little bit more. You know, drifting really hails back from from Japan many many decades ago and when drifting was was sort of not maybe as popular around the rest of the world over over in Japan, you were seeing power levels of maybe 350, 450 horsepower and, and probably not maybe too much more than that. Uh, these days, you know, power levels of 8, 900, 1,000 horsepower are, are, are more the norm and uh, I, I don't think you'd probably see too many naturally aspirated AE86s <laughs> competing with the best of the best these days, which is, in my opinion, a, a hell of a shame actually. Right. I love those cars. But you know, what? what's driven the power levels to get where they are what's changed in drifting where decades ago 400 horsepower was plenty and and now that wouldn't even have you uh you know in, anywhere near uh being competitive
0: right the the there's really one major answer to that or one main answer and that is a grip um you know it's a judged sport meaning that there's not really a stopwatch but there is a visual speed, meaning how well, by how much can you gap the chase car, or as a chase car, how well can you keep up with the lead car? So speed is very much a deciding factor in the sport. Uh, in and you know, in certain series, they still use speed guns. It's speed and and basically your timed lap per se is still quite important, and that's pushed, you know teams to look for better tires tire manufacturers to make better tires it's pushed fd into creating what i think is probably the best rule set for drifting series globally because fd has been able to keep the performance of all these different tires in check whereas a lot of the the other other series around the world you know russia japan even with d1 china it's kind of an arms race now where manufacturers can show up with any tire. So it's really all out right. slick tires with kind of a street, you know, tread, you know, cut out of them. So that's basically what's pushed the 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 power level levels to where they are because as drivers, we don't really care about numbers. We don't care what the power level is. What we care about is having enough power to overcome the grip. And the way we talk about it in in our team is all these different aspects of the car, we, we talk about having margin. We talk about having enough steering angle to overcome any kind of half-spin, overcome lead car checking up, basically overcome whatever gets thrown at you, and that goes for braking capability as well, being able to brake harder than lead car if he ends up slowing down faster than you, and it, it, it's, it comes down to power as well, having the ability to power out of any situation. Let's say you're in a gear too heavy. Whatever happens, you know, so at the end of the day, it's just about having enough of all these different uh, tools so that you can hmm. have the higher chance of, of putting a good rundown.
1: So it's been an iterative development sort of reading between the lines there. Tyre technology's improved so therefore grip improves which allows more power to be put to the track so mm. power levels increase and, and then we go through this constant iteration of, of improvements. And I, I think probably, I, I'd imagine anyone listening to this podcast has probably watched drifting, uh, obviously it, it's definitely nothing new at this point, but I think what is easy to, to overlook from a layman's perspective is uh, essentially it starts with a drag race mm-hmm. because you know, when you're on that chase run, if the car in front of you manages to pull out a, a massive gap, that's going to be very hard for you to make mm-hmm. up uh, during during the judge section. Is is that correct? 100%. So you, you want to be able to match that car in front with acceleration.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of a, a grudge match too, because especially in FD or at least in FD, we have a rolling start. So it's kind of like um, this tit for tatter, this, rolling it's it's kind of a rolling start where you're gauging these other cars and then the actual launch happens after the start signal.
1: Mhm. Now, most people probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to ride in a competitive drift car. So the actual power, the acceleration, etc is is probably a little difficult to to gauge by watching. I don't even know if you've got numbers here, but just so we could kind of break it down to to, to sort of something that's maybe a little bit more understandable. Could you give us maybe a zero to 60 mile an hour or a quarter mile time that that a current winning FD car could, could lay down?
0: Do you guys go by kilometers or miles per hour in New Zealand?
1: Here in New Zealand, we, we use kilometers yep. an hour, so I'm 0 to 100, but we have an international market, and uh, and I know a lot of people struggle. So 0 to 60, 0 to 100 for me, it's pretty much the same Yeah,
0: Yeah, okay. So the 0 to 60 won't be great because we're not hooking up, you know, we're, we're not on drag yep. radials, right? And suspension is not set up for drag. But from, okay, if we go back to kilometers per hour, but from like 100, 100 kilometers an hour to 250, these cars are pretty freaking fast. And in order to to kind of explain what it feels like, I I had the opportunity to to st- precision drive a stunt drive a Koenigsegg CCXR for a movie. That thing pulls like like a bag of it it felt like trash compared to a Pro FD car. <laughs> you know? The, the, these these FD Pro drift cars, I mean, the car that we're running in FD today puts down 1150 to the ground uh, with nitrous set up. At the same time, it's super civilized. You can drive it to the store, no problem. It's very, all the ergonomics, everything is super dandy. It's just very explosive when you need it. And it's super light. It's yep. dedicated to what we're doing. Imagine you're going down the freeway in New Zealand and you're going 100, what's the speed limit? 100K? 120 100K. 100k. Yeah, 100k. Double that. You, you're traveling down the freeway, 200k, maybe 250k, right? And then you're like, okay, I'm hungry. I'm going to turn off this intersection, this junction here. You're going 250, top of sixth, and you do a Scandinavian flick. You're on the e brake, clutch in, going 250. You're steering off the intersection. You're dropping a couple of gears into the next roundabout. You jump over the roundabout, load the car up. Still sliding, pop another gears down, and then you slide into McDonald's drive-through. <laughs> that's really what it is, and you know, most people wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't do that in a street car, but I'd do it any day in a pro drift car because that's what they're meant to do.
1: Sure, yeah, don't don't ever try that on the New Zealand, yeah. Zealand motorways. Obviously. Just yeah. if you do end up here, just a, just a pro yeah. tip. Alright so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing at a, an event in order to to optimise the, the car and get the most out of it because I, I can imagine it's it's like any form of motorsport, you don't just unload the car from the trailer, uh, go through your practice rounds and into competition and then load back up and, and go home without making changes. I assume you, you are making Tweaks run to run to optimize the car to the track to the conditions,
0: etc. Absolutely. So it starts with uh, the track. Is this a track we've been to before or is it a brand new track? So let's say it's a brand new track. Um, we will then make our best educated guess/ slash analysis on where to start with alignment and turbo size and uh, gearing. Um, tire pressure perhaps and i think those are the main factors uh so we will look at the size of the track we will look at whether and one of the cool things about drift is that it's usually only three or four corners so it's relatively easy to get to get a decent understanding of what you need for each individual corner um yeah. So we'll start there. Uh, we'll set up the final gear ratio, the tran- trans gears, for what we think we're going to need for each individual corner and kind of the best compromise between all of them. In reality, we end up running quite a bit of um, asymmetric um, uh, alignments. So we run, okay. uh, you know, obviously different toe, different camber, sometimes different dy- dynamic uh, suspension setups as well. We run a lot of wedge.
1: So you're talking asymmetric side, side to side yep. changes. Yeah. Yep. Okay.
0: We run a lot of wedge often, where we you know crossway the car. It's basically sitting. It's diagonally out of balance. Uh, kind of a yes. NASCAR yeah. style setup. Uh, tire pressures are very often you know different left to right. So we start off there with our best judgment. And in FD we have very limited track time, so we get twelve runs pre qualifying. So, yeah. but we still have enough time to do those twelve runs to where we can usually make certain changes in between. Um, but it's kind of it's it's a very analytical process for us. We're, we're very you know meticulous with how we go about it. And comp day and practice day isn't really the time to focus on. Oh, it's so much fun to drive that, you know, this is very much a, a, you're there to do a job. Exactly. It doesn't mean we don't like it. And I personally love that nitty gritty nerdy side of it. And I think that's why I've survived in this sport is because I, I am that setup nerd and that car nerd that loves doing those things.
1: Now you've just you've just mentioned a bunch of terms there. I kind of want to go back and, and unpack a few of them. And, and that that one that you mentioned wedge. I just want to dive into that a little bit because probably uh, some of the listeners might not understand that. So uh, one of the tools we have at our disposal, regardless if we're setting up a a, a road race car or or a, a drift car, is corner weighting the car. And at least uh, from my perspective, for road race applications. Most often what we're trying to do is get our cross weights to be 50-50 which means if we add up the weight on the front right corner and the left rear corner, the total of that uh, ideally we want to be 50% of the overall weight of the car and the reason we do that is because if we get that cross weight to be 50-50, the car should, all things being equal, handle and feel the same in a left hand corner compared to a right hand corner. Now you mentioned um, NASCAR and uh, obviously they go fast and they turn turn left so they don't really care how well the car turns to the right. So they use this wedge which is where you're, you're purposely Offsetting that, so you're not aiming for a 50% cross weight. You mentioned you're doing the same or similar in in the drift cars. So, am I right in saying this is to suit a, a track or a layout that's predominantly maybe more right-hand corners than left-hand, or vice versa? Yes,
0: yes, you're right in assuming that. And at the same time, it's 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 often more skewed too, where we're on a let's say a banked oval, where the the main or the the first corner is up on the high you know, the outer bank, Mm -hmm. and then we go into the infield, which is off camber, and then we're into the second bank, which has a little bit of camber, right? So, what we're really doing is taking away mechanical grip on that big bank to where the car can often feel too tight, it can feel like you have too much grip, and you get it back where you need it the most, right? And then we take a little more grip back out of the car in that next left-hander. So what it really is, is removing grip, either front or rear grip, in going left and adding it going right or vice versa. And, you know, yeah. going back to what you said about cross-weighing the car to where it's even or balanced, I, I'm a firm believer that a lot of that is is our OCD kicking in, right? I I think even, even if you're road racing, most usually usually the corner is a lap, right? Meaning that there's usually more corners going left than there is going right. So I think there are a lot of benefits even to the club racer or, nov- you know, novice with playing around with these different setups. 100%. Uh, and maybe there's one really tricky corner on that road race course where you could you could really benefit from taking away some push, you know? So So I think there's... I think Mm. a lot of people even coming up through the ranks are are listening too much to what's right per the book, as opposed to trying these different setups for themselves and learning from it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's really important to to actually dedicate some time to making specific changes and then actually going out and, and, and getting a sense from the driver's seat, well, what did that feel yep. like? What did it actually do as opposed to what the textbook says it should yep. do? And, and building up that understanding for yourself of, of what these changes feel like and that knowledge over time then you get to a to a certain track you're going to have have an understanding of from your experience oh, okay i think we want to try this this and this yeah. that should set us up w- which leads me to to my next question with limited track time and such a vast array of of potential adjustability in the suspension of your cars what are you using to help guide you with what change to make from from one session to another? Have you got data analysis techniques that you're using or is it seat of the pants and experience primarily?
0: So both. Obviously, this is where experience comes into play, right? Like I've been lucky enough to now travel the world and tr- drive tons of different cars and, you know, in, yeah, in different series. And so all of that experience plays into this. At the same time, uh we're using data and more and more of it you know we're we've run a special sensor in the car uh this year where we're not just logging yaw and in gps and gs but we're also logging what do you call the that direction is that the z-axis
1: vertical uh yeah Uh, heave heave. yeah
0: vertical axis -axis. z-axis yep so we're playing around with all these different things and we end up using a lot of video for analysis as well because it's judged. Obviously, the more you can see what's going on, you know, the only thing that really matters to us is what the judges see. So that's why we try mm. and really study and, and and look at video from the ang- from the judges' angle. Uh, so so it's mm. it's really coming down to using whatever tools are available, but also not getting lost in the info stream because you can definitely end up. Uh, going down the rabbit hole of hyper focusing on something that, at the end of the day, isn't the most crucial. So we're always trying to tread, find that balance, right, between really trying to learn something new without losing track of the overall picture of what's going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, you've mentioned gearing and the the final drives and and how how you're making changes to those. Mm. Now. Obviously, the winter's quick change rear end is has been sort of a staple for for any pro drift car for for a fair while now. So that allows you to change your overall gearing up and down to suit whether the track is high speed, low speed, whatever. So you can keep the the engine in the power band. Uh, changing individual ratios in the in the transmission is sort of taking that to another level. So. What what are you trying to do there? Are you trying to sort of gear everything so that you are just within a specific power band? How many gear changes are you trying to to make? You know, talk us through the the thought process there. Yeah.
0: So there's a couple of things that we are trying to achieve. One is shifting uh, the least amount of times possible. Uh, yep. And you know, my again, my good friend Mad Mike, he it's so cool seeing Mike drive because he's such a different school than I am way more flamboyant. And it's almost like Mike wants to shift as many times as possible. And it's freaking awesome. Right. And, and, and I love that about him, but at the same time, it's, it's opening a can of worms every time you shift. Right. So, so it's, it's, Again, it, it's cool to see how drifting can be so, di- so many different things and you can do it so many different ways. But for us, it's about limiting the the, the amount of times we have to shift. Number two is conserving tires because we want to make sure we – we. it's a fine balance between uh, making the run look exciting and at the same time saving tire and therefore grip, uh, reducing the the, the pr- pressure growth and, and you know – Of the tires so it's it's that balance and at the same time and probably perhaps some of the most important is finding being able to get the best uh, feeding in the power on corner exit so we can get the best drive out of the corner so we can possibly do Uh, especially Mm -hmm. you know in the the wet or if it's uh, a really slippery corner we will Really try and modulate and feed in the throttle and half slip the clutch to get the drive out of these corners. And the lighter the gear you can run there, the better it is. But then you run the risk of revving out too early to where you barely, barely make it before the next corner without you know straightening out. So it's that balance between yeah. those three three factors.
1: Okay. Now,
0: and you've mentioned
1: the tire and how the tires have evolved. To to the point you're getting so much more grip these days. You also mentioned you uh, just in passing that you believe FD's got a a, a really good rule set there. Mm. Is, is that around? Well, particularly you mentioned the tie there. Is that around making sure that? Uh, one manufacturer of tires doesn't have just such a runaway advantage over the others. And, and if that's the case, so what are they doing to, to sort of equalize uh, the tire performance across all the
0: different brands? Yeah, so I, I think what it starts with is making sure that we have a multitude of different manuf- tire manufacturers that wants to be involved and have the ability mm. to be involved. And by being involved, can support the different teams. So, in FT today, the tire manufacturers are probably the biggest monetary contributors to the teams, which is awesome, right? So, now if you compare that to these lawless uh, series where it's essentially one or two tires you have to be on in order to win, Mm -hmm. and now people that are sponsored by other tires even are buying these other tires, you know, under the table and running them in competition. So, kind of under not doing what FD is doing kind of undermines the whole uh, viable business aspect of the series, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, it's sure. that. And at the same time, limiting the grip a little bit will make clutches, transmissions, drivetrains, motors last hell of a lot longer. And, you know, <laughs> in D1 now, you, you're seeing a lot of photos of snapped input shafts and axles and, it's a race to the bottom. I mean, it's amazing. It's the more grip, the more fun it is to drive. I mean, it gets trickier at some point, but it's just choose through parts.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's no one. No one really wants to go to a a track and spend the whole weekend wrenching on the car because you're busting parts left, right, and center. So it it is a challenge, and you get to these power levels and grip levels where you know even the best parts that money can buy they they still they still break. So it is it's a challenge. Uh, You mentioned uh, pressure growth with the tire as well. So this is something that. we have to deal with, in, in just about any form of motorsport, obviously the tyre has has a sweet spot in terms of pressure where you're optimising the tyre contact patch, You know, overinflated and basically the tyre balloons out and your contact patch shrinks to the middle of the tyre, underinflate, it's running on the outside edges. So you know, with drifting, I, I'm guessing there's another challenge in there because you've got t- so much wheel spin which is obviously putting huge amounts of heat into the rear tires mm. and you have to do two laps on these tires. Mm. Yep. So h- how are you, do you under inflate for your first lap so that you're not massively over inflated for the second lap? W- w- where's the compromise come there? H- how are you kind of doing that?
0: Yeah, that <laughs> always a challenge uh, because obviously with the lower, lower tire pressure, You know, depending how low you actually go, you get more grip, obviously, with the lower pressure. Now, if you qualify high, you have to lead first. And that too much grip will make the car a little hard to drive. Whereas, Mm. so where I'm going with this is sometimes you'd want to chase first uh, with a slightly grip your car in chase because you can get away with a little less angle and not pushing, in, uh, pushing it out to the outer zones in that first run. And now you have a slightly looser car for the second run, which is now your lead. So those are some of the things that we're trying to fight. But it's, because at the same time, we also want to qualify high because you have a higher chance of, of facing an easier opponent. I mean, no opponent's easy, but th- there's some of that going on. It's It's very track-dependent, you know? How much grip can we pull off in a lead run? Sometimes we have to make sure we don't get too greedy with dropping pressures too far, both from a drivability point of view as well as a risk of de-beating point of view. Mm. Uh, it's dependent on who we're facing, their, their expected speed or pace through the course. And, you know, there's no secret that in fd you know for most tracks we're down in the low you know the single digits you know in terms of psi half a bar six seven psi wow quite low
1: yeah that's that's incredibly low
0: and what we're trying to do is obviously maximize that contact patch like you were saying so we're we're running the nitto uh, g2s a 315 4018, huge tire with a massive sidewall at half a bar. Imagine that contact patch. Uh, mm, mm. These cars have a lot of understeer if you were to race them not drifting. So there's okay. quite quite a bit of rear grip.
1: So the way of overcoming that understeer is to break the rear loose. Yep.
0: But at the same time, through a long, medium to low angle corner, you're still going to experience that understeer. And that's, again, where we're trying yeah. to balance you know the... The, the pros and cons of running a lot of rear grip. we we're, right now we're in the process of, of trying to find more front grip but now you're running into uh, packaging issues with running a big tire because you, you don't have you know wheel well space for them at lock, mm. uh, availability. so there's uh, you know like uniform racing it's always always a compromise. Yeah and we're just trying to raise yeah. that compromise.
1: I just want to talk briefly about the the Supra, the A90 GR Supra chassis. So you, you kind of alluded to some of the aspects of that already, the the lower centre of gravity. But um, I mean, in, in terms of the transition from the the likes of the the front wheel drive Toyota Corolla with the four cylinder converted rear wheel drive versus the the Supra, can you give us the the pros of the Supra and maybe if there are any downsides, the the cons as well.
0: Yep. Pros, uh, low center of gravity is by far the, the biggest one. It it allows you to run us off the car, you know, uh, put more weight in that inner rear. You get you basically in short, you get a much nicer handling car for the grip level we're running. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of downsides. Uh, short wheelbase makes it a little twitchy, you know, not as stable as probably a longer wheelbase one. Uh, Low or short overhang in the rear it gives you less margin for a wall ride or you know a wall hit if you compare it to a Mustang or you know uh, the Ute that my friend Josh Robinson is running you know which has probably a meter of <laughs> overhang. Um, the another issue is the the way the the way the rules are written. You're not allowed to push the shock towers out beyond the bolt circle or the PCD of the shock tower. So in order to make okay. the front suspension of, of a narrow McPherson car work, you end up with a lot of kingpin inclination. So basically, you're a lot of compromise in the front end where we run a lot of static camber, but as we start turning, that outer tire starts leaning a lot. So you only mm-hmm. had really have a flat contact patch at probably half of your lock cycle. And that is that is somewhat of an issue for drivability in front grip, um, yeah okay. but manageable you mentioned
1: the the power levels you're running at the moment around that eleven fifty that was that was eleven fifty to the hub,
0: yes, to the ground on a mustang roller, okay,
1: a mustang roller so where do you sort of see? the the limit there is is that a happy place or is the more progress to come in time with that would you would you happily have another 100 or 200 horsepower if it was on offer uh
0: i think for the track we're at the limit at certain tracks like long beach i'm sorry at irvindale and seattle uh we were fine last year um but i think moving forward grip levels are only going to go up and the the bigger issue here is drivability. So we we go through quite a few clutches probably I mean we're on a quad so I' probably go through like 40 discs a year uh, for the eight rounds and we start burning through a lot of clutches where there's a lot of e-brake pulls in heavy gears and back on and feeding the throttle back in. We just put so much heat through the clutch that a bigger motor where you could, get away with better drivability off the clutch will probably save the clutches more. Um, So I, so I think I'm starting or not starting to, but I think the ideal drift motor is probably a bigger displacement, but (laughs) retaining some of that weight. So I personally think, you know, speaking out loudly, like, like a one UZ, two UZ, three UZ is probably still a great power plant for, from the Toyota family. You know, obviously, there's some other motors in that realm from other manufacturers. But like a compact, lightweight V6 or V8 with a single or, or twin installation where you're able to to keep the weight low is shaping yep. up to be the leading um, platform. With that said, though, the B58 is pretty mind-blowing for what it is. I mean, it far exceeds any 2J that I run, it, <laughs> yeah. and the weight
1: yeah. on top of it, it, it it's a really light. Yeah, I mean, the 2J the is a great engine, but um, when you're dealing with a, a cast iron block, there's there's a, a lot of inherent weight that's difficult to, to get rid of, and I haven't dealt with one personally, but uh, yeah, that, that BMW engine uh, seems to have exceeded everyone's expectations. Yeah. Now, in terms of drifting as a, a sport, one of the, the comments that, that comes up from time to time is arguments over the fact it is is ultimately a judged sport, which which is fairly unique for motorsport. Normally, we're racing against the stopwatch, and the stopwatch really doesn't lie. Mm. Uh, so with drifting, you know, you, you have judges basically giving you scores, and anytime there's a human element that that comes into that it gets a little bit questionable from time to time and uh, obviously not everyone's going to agree with the judge's calls. Do you expect in the future of drifting we're going to see technology come in to to maybe take that human
0: element out of the judging? Totally. Uh, Maybe not take the human element out entirely, but at least help support the judging and perhaps even support the... The fans' perception of what's going on. Um, as a competitor today, I want to say I probably agree with ninety percent of the calls, sure. and can understand ninety percent of the calls. Even, but that means there's still ten percent of the calls that I don't necessarily agree with. And I, you know, I think that's a pretty good ratio. But. If I'm not at 100%, I can only envision what it's like for, for the casual fan, right? And it is hard to understand at times. And the more technical it gets, the the more difficult it can become too. So, it's, it's, an, it's a balance there between having data to rely on without it, you know, um, making it more challenging to understand what's going on. So, that's a constant debate in drifting is how do we... How do we make a rule set that seats it for everyone to understand? How do we stick to that rule set? How do we use data in the best way possible? And but it's coming. You know, yeah. FD's talking about proximity sensors, they're talking about in-car cameras, they're talking about they're already pulling data from our ECUs to see if there's a lift or not. Obviously, again, Mad Mike and, and the drift shifters set up where they use proximity sensors around the courses. There's a lot of that going on. Yeah. And but I think ultimately some Ultimately, human decisions will be a part of drifting, and I mean, look at F one. Look at the last. uh, You know, it's
1: (laughs) it's a great point. You
0: you know, so it's
1: (laughs) yeah. Certainly, no one could argue human uh, human judgment didn't come into play with uh, Max Verstappen's championship, um, which is unfortunate for him. Sort of won a championship under a bit of a a cloud, really.
0: Yeah, but it. But it's yeah. It's always going to be some it it's the same in soccer right you know it's it's always going to be the powers that be having some kind of uh effect on what's going on and i think that's the black art of sports it's really understanding yeah. how do you put yourself in that favorable position and capitalize on it when you can't you know that's as at least as a competitor that's all we can do absolutely in
1: terms of other developments that you kind of see on the the horizon for drifting, you know, if if you looked into your crystal ball in the next ten years, what what do you see coming into
0: Formula D? Um, I'd love to see someone do a new take on an electric uh, vehicle. Uh, you know, we had a yep. Tesla powertrain powered, you know, Camaro a couple of years back, which didn't really work that well. But I think if you did it in a more conventional layout where you just replace the motor, but keep the drivetrain where you actually run the motor mm-hmm. through a clutch and a, a trance, it'd be a better setup. I would love to see that to stay in tune with what's going on elsewhere in the world. Um, other than that, I think it's just going to keep uh, develop, you know, we're, we're going to keep making more and more grip, more and more power. Um, I think it'd be cool to explore something that was – very different, more uh, uh, more in tune with pop culture. Maybe more, you know. I, I've been a big proponent for drift shifters. I'd love to be a part of a of a, of a world series where we go to these these um, iconic areas and and downtowns and cities and beaches and stuff like that, yeah. and where there's more focus on the sport and the precision more so than perhaps the tire smoke because i think that's yep, something yep. that we may face and need in order to yeah keep the sport that we love going
1: all right Frederick, Uh we we're probably getting a, a little bit long here and i want to respect your your time so we'll we'll wrap things up um what's next on the radar for you uh you know, winning us driver i, I think uh, you know, is there a point where enough's enough? Uh is retirement on the cards, or are you still as driven and passionate about drifting
0: as you've always been? I am definitely as passionate about it, but in different ways. As I, you know, as I've gone through the ranks, it's it's different things that start attracting me more, and I I still really love the the nerdy nitty gritty uh, moments of a race weekend. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm starting to look around and and maybe one day I could help bring up some other, you know, aspiring drifter, uh, maybe a girl, some, something new. I'd love to be on that side of the table and, and, and maybe, you know, providing some help to, to the next, the next up and coming driver, you know?
1: Certainly, mentorship from uh, someone of of uh, your standing in in the drift community would uh, would be really powerful. So that'd be exciting to see. Um- on, on that same note really, the, the next question, if you were to sort of take all of your experience over your career, package that up and be able to give some advice to a younger version of yourself just wanting to get started maybe following a career as a professional drifter or for that matter any form of professional motorsport, uh, what, what advice would you give to yourself to fast track that, that uh, career?
0: Follow your gut and and don't don't take what everyone else says for gospel. Um, I think having a, a strong bullshit filter and really trusting your own analysis and your own way of doing it, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's its something that I've always done, but it's something that I see in hindsight that has really helped me. doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to other people, but definitely, definitely spend your own time really understanding what's going on. And, and, uh, you know, competitors definitely, they will tell you a lot of things, but maybe not, they won't tell you the core of what's actually winning. Uh, and you kind of got to go out there and learn that for yourself. So just, you know, if you're out there and you're an aspiring driver, drifter or or crew member, just dive into it and you'll, you'll find your way and be out there, talk to people and, but at the end of the day, trust your own gut feeling with whatever you're doing, and you'll be just fine. Perfect. All right,
1: last question for today, Frederick. If uh, people are interested in following you, uh, checking out your journey, how are they best to do so?
0: Maybe what's the new app Grinder? really okay didn't did not see that one coming i'm I'm happily married to my my wife uh and uh so probably not grinder at least not officially but uh perfect but uh instagram you know my name frederick alspo i'm on facebook i you know i have a youtube not very good at it i'm on tiktok now but i think instagram is where the action is we're ramping up over here for ice drifting which is probably the most fun i have behind the Wheel of a race car. We're in these 200 horsepower basic Supras and Dimmers and ISs and Altezas. And it's amazing. And it's kind of like a spec class where we all run NA straight sixes, but we're all looking for these little cheats here and there. So I'm just rebuilding mine with my buddy and a little bit more compression, different tune, some tricks and spec. You know, it's love it. So the Frozen Lakes here are now starting to really look good and it's cold enough and ready to go have some fun on the lake. Sounds exciting.
1: All right, Frederick, thanks heaps for your time and uh, really appreciate it and look forward to uh, seeing your endeavors uh, over the next uh, little while. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Alright that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 Dollars off the purchase of your first course, you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well, it never expires, you can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you 3 months of access to our gold membership, that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm, we dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live you can ask questions and get answers in real time.